We're continuing in Hebrews this morning. We're going to pick back up where we left off last week, which was in the first four verses. Uh, and we, we won't uh, make any attempt to get past those first four verses this morning. We're just going to camp out in those verses. And, uh, and maybe we finish and maybe we don't. And if we need to, we'll pick up next week. Uh, but we don't want to rush too fast, too quickly past the opening four verses, which are so foundational to the entire book. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for time together in your word this morning. Uh, we thank you for that word that has been preached and, uh, and for Pastor Nathan's faithfulness in preparing and delivering that. Father, we thank you for the encouragement uh, that is there in the truth that we heard this morning. Uh, and so now as we turn to Christ, uh, that great general, uh, Father, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes and our, our ears, our minds and our hearts uh, to gaze upon him in all of his glory, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, a quick note on resources and actually, um, hey, Aaron, would you do me a favor? Uh, on the book table is a book. Um, it's one of the little blue books, Christ uh, Humbled and Exalted, I believe is the title. And bring me a copy. I meant to grab one of those. Uh, so last, uh, so the first Sunday, I recommended a little uh, red paperback that's an introduction to the doctrine of Christ. I've ordered some of those for the book table, but they're like three weeks delivery on those or something like that. So sometime before the end of March, hopefully, we'll have copies of that book on the book table. The one I recommended last week, which was by a Puritan uh, named uh, John Flavel, uh, is, uh, is already on the table. I've got copies of those back there. And if you'll remember, that one, which is focused on Christ and his three offices, prophet, priest, and king, is, is an excerpt out of a larger work that he did. And in that larger work, when he gets finished with that section, he moves on to the next section, which is on Christ, humbled and exalted. Uh, and that has also been excerpted and printed as its own volume. And so I've got copies of that on the table in the back. And so I really want to, uh, it, first of all, if you like what you hear in class about these books or from these books, I'll read you an example in a sec. Uh, I would encourage you to read the three offices first, just because that's the order he wrote these things in. So he, he occasionally makes reference back to something he's already said, and it turns out it's in the other book. But I'm very cautious about recommending Puritans, not because of their theology. Their theology is fantastic. Uh, they are just sometimes really, really a slog to read. Uh, and the reason I'm comfortable recommending Flavel is, first of all, uh, that the chapters are very, very small. Uh, they're very bite-sized chapters. And the second is they're organized in a way that's really helpful. And so uh, you can pick up any one of the chapters. They're all organized the same. And you get just a couple of pages. So in this case, you get what amounts to two pages of him introducing the topic to you. And then you get, uh, and you're not going to be able to see it really, but there's a break and it says doctrine. This is the, the one point he wants you to get. And in the chapter one of this humbled and exalted, the doctrine is Christ's incarnation was marked by deep abasement and humiliation. Christ's incarnation was marked by deep abasement and humiliation, and he goes on to explain that doctrine. And again, in this case, he's gonna do that over two and a half pages, right? And then you come to the last section, which is application. And in application, he breaks it down into lessons. Lesson one, lesson two, he's got Two and a half pages of lessons and you're done with the chapter. There, you, you can get through the whole thing 
uh, as quickly as 10 minutes. Uh, if, you, if you kind of work your way through it and meditate some, you might spend 20, right? So it, it's, it's very uh, accessible in terms of how long it takes to get through a chapter. Uh, the, the third reason I'm happy to recommend Flavel is he writes in a way that though you, you have to have uh, advanced past about a third grade leave, reading level to understand him, if you want to understand him, he's understandable, right? Sometimes the Puritans are just almost impossible to understand. They're, I literally have read John Owen with a dictionary uh, in the other hand because he uses words that have fully expired from the English language, right? Uh, Flavel does not do that, uh, so he's, uh, he's much easier to read. Again, I want to read you uh, just a couple of quick examples to give you a sense for how Flavel reads. In the application section is where he's easiest, right, and also most beautiful. It's here, and this is what I love about him. He's going to give you sound doctrinal truth over four or five pages, but when he gets to the application, it's application. It's something you can take with you, right? So he says uh, here, remember that doctrine was that Christ in his incarnation was humiliated. So he's already spent four or five pages really digging uh, in the, the, the earth of Scripture to show you what that is. Now he applies. We infer the fullness and completeness of Christ's satisfaction as the sweet first fruits of his incarnation. So that's lesson one. We infer the fullness and completeness. What Christ did to satisfy the wrath of God was so sweet and complete. What do we do with that? He says, we offended and violated God's law, but God himself became man to repair the breach and satisfy for the wrong committed. The greater Christ was, the greater was his humiliation. The greater Christ was in heaven, the greater his humiliation to come down to earth and become the creature, right? And the greater his humiliation, the more full and complete was his satisfaction. If his humiliation accomplishes our, the satisfaction for our sin, uh, for God's wrath, if it's his humiliation that accomplishes that, then the greater that humiliation, the greater the accomplishment of satisfaction. And the more complete Christ's satisfaction, the more certain is the believer's consolation. If he had not stooped so low, our joy and comfort could not be exalted so high. The depth of the foundation is the strength of the superstructure. The foundation upon which our salvation is built is the foundation of Jesus Christ and his humiliation. And it is a great humiliation, right? Uh, so that's just the, the first application. That's what you get here uh, in Flavel's work, so I commend it to you. There are uh, both the, the book I recommended last week and this one are on the table out there. I got 10 copies, uh, and if you're not familiar with how the table works, the books are free. Take them. The church pays for them. If you would like to help the church continue that ministry, you're, you're welcome to make a donation. You can just write book donation and drop it in the, the box on the table back there where all the other offerings go. But there's no expectation of that. Uh, we're, we're happy to supply these things. It, uh, it, it is for us an encouragement to know you're reading good things uh, and, uh, and being ministered to that way. So uh, one last note on this and the other books I've recommended and, and the whole point of reading in the Christian life, and that is that the Christian life and, and our engagement in 
pursuing Christ and gazing upon Christ and being filled with joy and peace that are ours because of Christ is something that we do not only privately and alone, but in community with one another. And there's a lot of different ways we do that in community with one another. One of them is what we're doing right now as we're about to open up Hebrews 1. Uh, we, we've uh, engaged in this in corporate worship together. I hope we engage in this in conversations with one another, uh, both on Sundays and throughout the week. But we can also be in conversation with those who have gone before. Uh, and that's what we do when we read in particular. We're in conversation with those who have gone before or those who may not be here right? Maybe they're not dead. Maybe they haven't gone before. <laughs> Maybe they're still alive, but they, they're a thousand miles away, and, uh, and you would have no other way to benefit from the wisdom God's given them, uh, but they have, by God's grace, written it down, and it's available to us. So we're in conversation all the time as believers with other believers, uh, and hopefully the Spirit at work in those conversations. So I commend that reading to you, uh, and as I'm able, I'll continue to recommend resources to you. Um, one of the resources I'm using that's more traditional, it's a commentary on the book of Hebrews that I find helpful is by a scholar named Peter O'Brien in a series called the Pillar New Testament Commentary Series. These commentaries aren't cheap. Uh, You may find that it's uh, it's outside your budget, and that's okay, Uh, but uh, if you can afford it and would like it, uh, commentaries, uh, good commentaries, are an excellent resource. Um, I, I, sh- I need to double check. Peter O'Brien's commentary in Hebrews may or may not be in print anymore. If it's out of print, it's that much more expensive to, to get a copy. But if you can find it and, uh, and afford it, it's a, uh, a great guide to Hebrews. So with all that in mind, let's turn to Hebrews 1. What we did last week in Hebrews is uh, we, we did observation Right? I, I talked about the fact that part of what we're doing in class is, uh, is it, it's less going to a fine restaurant where everything is happening back in the back. You have no idea what's happening, but good food comes out. Uh, that's one way to, to teach, and it's a perfectly good way to teach, a good way to have a meal, right? Uh, but what we're trying to do here is more of a clinic on how to cook. Uh, we want to teach you how to cook so that you can make these meals for yourself at home. Uh, And so what we're doing is not as much preparation as I am doing during the week. My intention is not to come in here with a neat three-point outline, deliver to you the truth while you sit passively, but to have you engage and learn how to do this so you can continue to do it on your own. With that in mind, let's take a look at, uh, again, at these first four verses. Uh, And last week, we we spent time making observations. What I want to do this week is, uh, is just run through some of my observations, uh, some of which we, we touched on last week, and, uh, and begin to, to really come to the point of application. I'm sorry, pulling my notes up. Here we go. And so, uh, a couple of things. We'll just move through this. Uh, movement, uh, the movement of Christ from preexistent to incarnate to exalted. Again, this is just an observation. When you read the text, we see uh, a movement in the text in speaking about Christ from the preexistent to the incarnate to the exalted. And so we haven't read it yet this morning. Let's read the text and, and think through that as we read. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So this is the preexistent Christ, right? This is the the Christ before the incarnation. 
Uh, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is the incarnate Christ in his work, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the glorified Christ. So you see a movement on the part of the author of Hebrews from a Christ who is preexistent to a Christ who is incarnate at work for our salvation to a Christ who now is in heaven uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father and having inherited this name. Uh, the name we talked about last week is Son. Right? It's, it's a title as opposed to a, what we would normally think of as a name. Uh, notice the acknowledgement that the God of the Old Testament is the same God. Uh, particularly in the early church, bless you, Ken, particularly in the early church, uh, but it's also true even today. Andy Stanley, who has such a popular ministry among evangelicals, has in the last year or two said that the Old Testament is no longer useful for Christians, that we, we should no longer pay attention to the Old Testament. That was an old, uh, an old version of God, so to speak. Uh, it's of no value to us. And the the church, the early church, rejected this view. They said the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and he's not a different God, a different kind of God, or in a different mood in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. It's one and the same God who is unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. And look at what the, the author of Hebrews assumes in his opening line. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There's your Old Testament God. But in these days, he has spoken to us by a son. That's the New Testament God, and it's one and the same God. The author of Hebrews here uh, assumes one and the same God, not a different Old Testament God from New Testament God. One of the reasons that's important is not just the truth. It's not just, no, that's error, it's not true, we've got to fix that error. But it's the Old Testament God that made the promises that we are inheriting, right? If that's a different God, where are the promises? Where did the New Testament God make promises that I'm clinging to? No, I'm clinging to the very promises that were made by that Old Testament God and secured by his son. Uh, And so it's important that we recognize the Old and New Testaments, while there is some what we call discontinuity, because of what Christ did, some things have changed. But God has not changed, and his promises have not changed. His character has not changed, and so he is faithful to keep those promises. Uh, Notice the acknowledgement that it is God who has spoken, uh, and that he took the initiative. What we have is his word, and therefore is authoritative. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's God who initiates his revelation. It's not long ago at many times and in many ways uh, a man hung out in a cave uh, and fasted until he had a vision. It's not man who has initiated this relationship with God, but God who initiates this relationship. God is the one who spoke. And the fact that he spoke makes it authoritative. He is the one speaking. Uh, what, we, what we have in Christianity is not a collection of, uh, of dramatic spiritual insights by a particularly wise and good man like Buddhism. What we have is God who created all things, who is the God of all things, sovereign over all things, all-powerful over all things, says. And therefore we know 
that it's right, it's true, and it's authoritative. It also uh, here, uh, so we've got God as the subject, and, and by, uh, according to the context, we understand this is God the Father. Uh, God the Father spoke to our fathers by the prophets, which is not to say he didn't speak by means of his son, uh, but he certainly does in these last days speak to us by his son. Uh, so God is the one who is the subject of all of those verbs. But having introduced this son in verse 3, the son becomes the subject. He, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he, again, that's the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become the son, having become as much superior to angels as the name that, that he, the son, has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, and so we recognize that it is God the Father and God the Son at work throughout these first four verses. The centrality of Christ in these verses is, is a huge welcome sign to the letter to the Hebrews, uh, suggesting to us, making clear to us, that the entire focus of this whole book is Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And it's, it, in as much as that's the center of this book, it's a lesson to us that it's the center of our very reality. Uh, Jesus Christ, the, the longer I am no longer, I'm not only, the longer I am not only a believer, but I am a pastor, the, the more viscerally I have come to recognize and embrace that the, the only ministry that matters is pointing the people of God to Jesus Christ in his person and his work. I, I come to understand more and more viscerally what Paul says, I was determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified among you. This is what I preached, Paul says. Nothing else, Christ and him crucified. Now, that's a simple statement. Of course, Paul is going to unpack that Christ in his ministry. We see that in his letters. But Christ is ours, and we are his, and, and the Christian life is one. When, when I say that it's, it's, I, I'm more and more coming to appreciate that this is what matters most, I want you to understand, again, I'm not talking about what matters most in order to, for you to be academically correct. What matters the most for you to be able to congratulate yourself on having cracked the code on the Christian life. I mean, if you are fighting with sin, and you cannot seem to get victory, gaze upon Christ. I mean, really gaze upon Christ. Take up one of these books by Flavel and, and read, because this is what he's doing. He's gazing on Christ and inviting you to join him. Open up his word. Read the book of Hebrews. Meditate on what the author of Hebrews says about Christ, because it is in gazing upon Christ that we will come to know God better. It's in gazing upon Christ that we will find all of the assurance that we need that our weakness, our failures, our sin and rebellion, even as we struggle against it and we grieve and we hate it, finds its relief in Christ and Him alone. We need to be reminded of that truth, and you'll find it when you gaze to Christ, because when you look at Christ in His Word, what you're going to see is one who, who's continually saying things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A Christ who did not from heaven peer over to the earth and throw down wisdom for us, but himself was humiliated. 
the creator became a creature. And in that humiliation, he, he has literally and intentionally, fully and truly become one of us. We gaze upon Christ, and in that, we find all of the comfort we need in him, all of the comfort that we need, right? This is what we're, we're seeing just in the opening verses here. The author of Hebrews is, it is just, we are on blast by the author of Hebrews to look to Christ, and he puts him on display in all of his glory here as, as much as any fallen person could uh, using words. So we look at how we have the three offices of Christ here in the text. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. There's Christ's prophetic ministry. God speaks to us by Christ, both in the words Christ spoke and in the way that Christ lives, God speaks to us. Christ is our great prophet. He's the prophet upon which all prophets before and since have been modeled. All of them are shadows, copies of the one true prophet, who's Jesus Christ. Look at his priestly office. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now you notice there's an action here. He sat down. You've, you may have heard this before, but the priests in the temple who made purification in Jerusalem were never allowed to sit down because the work was never done. And I don't mean we've inferred that. I mean, they are told, you may not sit down. If you are on duty as a priest in the temple, there are no chairs, there are no seats, no benches, no pews. You do not sit down because your work is never done. In fact, the implements that were used for carrying coals and blood and water around were pointed on the bottom. They weren't even allowed to set them down on the ground. They're pointed on the bottom because they are meant to always be in hand because the work is never done. And one who sits down is one whose work is finished. So Jesus Christ makes purification and then he sits. The work is finished. Graham. I, you know, it's always hard to say what was in the mind of a first century, you know, um, Mediterranean citizen, uh, but I think so, yes, uh, because it, it was such an integral part of the temple worship, and the people that he's writing to are those who know that temple cult well enough that right now they're tempted to go back to it, uh, and so I, I believe that they would have caught that, yes, they would have, have recognized that. He's, first of all, they would have just, if they didn't see it coming, when he says that, that he, after making purification for sins, they, they now absolutely are thinking Levitical priesthood in the high, in, you know, the high priest of the, the Aaronic priesthood in the temple, making purification. That was the entire work of the priesthood in the temple was to make purification. Uh, they were receiving animals to be sacrificed so that the blood would purify. Uh, there was water in the temple cult that, that purified. They were constantly sprinkling and splashing this blood and water all over everything to purify everything. The high priest couldn't go in and make purification for the people until he'd first made purification for himself. The priests, when they came on to duty, had to go through what, what were called mikvot, which were ritual baths in order to be purified ritually for the service they were entering into. Uh, the, the entire ethos of the temple cult is one of purification. So that when he says, after making purification for sins, 
There's I, no question in my mind that they immediately thought the work of the priest in the temple. To go from that in the very next breath to say he sat down had to have been a slap in the face. I mean, just a, a, a splash of cold water to them, right? Uh, just just a, pulling them up short. He sat down? Yeah, he sat down because he's finished. And the author of Hebrews is going to make that point explicitly later in the book, right? He says the priests are always at work in the temple because their work is never done. Why is it never done? It's because it doesn't actually purify. But Jesus Christ, having shed his blood once and for all, sat down, right? So I, I know that's what the author of Hebrews has in mind. I believe his original audience would have picked up on it. So we've seen his prophetic work and his priestly work. Look at the language in these verses that points to his royal identity, his office of king. He is a son of God, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance and imprint of God, who upholds the universe by the word of his power and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, superior even to the angels. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and the author of Hebrews uh, captures that in the way that he describes Christ here. Uh, I think my favorite thing in these verses is the, uh, the way that the verb speak is, is at the center of the whole thing. It's all about speech. Look at the ways, not only explicitly, but implicitly, that the author of Hebrews works this in, right? Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke. So there's the introduction to the verb. That's really the verb that runs through this entire thing in one, one sense or another. God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. How did God create the world? He spoke, right? We're told that, that the, the word by which God created was Jesus Christ. So that the reference to his having created the world is not an opening line in a systematic theology. Right? He's, he's not rehearsing some definition uh, out of a book. The author of Hebrews is intentionally pointing us to the fact that it is through Christ that God created the world because God spoke through Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This word radiance here in the original language, is, it refers to the source. So when he says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, it's not God and Christ, it's God is Christ. Christ is God. Christ is not a reflection of the light that comes from God. He is God and the radiance of God. As such, his word has authority. Look at this, and the exact imprint of his nature. That's, uh, that's the language of seal. The, the exact imprint of his nature. In the same way that you, you took at the time a ring, uh, you know, that represented authority, and, and your identity as king or governor or whatever your, your, however your authority was derived, uh, and having had a message written up, you would press that into clay or wax, and then send it by messenger so that when the recipient received it, they could see the seal and know that you stood over that document and affirmed it. That's the language that's being used here when it says the imprint of his nature. 
uh, his nature being the nature of God. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, there's a lot of different ways the author of Hebrews could have talked about Jesus' identity as God, his divinity. And again, he's not getting here merely at the fact that Jesus Christ is divine. He's getting at the fact that the message that Christ delivers is itself a divine message. That it is authorized by God. Jesus Christ himself is the imprint of the very nature of God. So that when he says, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, spoken a message by his son, that son and his message that he speaks is a message that is authorized by God. It is the message of God because Christ himself is God. He is the very word by which God created the world. And so uh, we've, we've got these, uh, all of this language about, uh, about Christ that points to his qualification to speak. God having spoken through him, it is the ultimate speech that God delivers is in Jesus Christ. Uh, the last thing I'll point out along these lines is the reference to angels. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What I usually come across or hear when somebody's teaching or preaching this and we get to angels is that within Judaism at the time, there was a, uh, a view of angels that bordered on deification. There was some confusion about angels and the role they played and whether or not they were to be worshipped. Uh, I, I all do respect to those who go that direction. I don't think that has anything to do uh, with what the author of Hebrews is saying here. An angel is a messenger. In fact, it's, it's there in the Greek. That's the, the, the word group that covers the message or to proclaim the message uh, is, uh, is right here. So, for example, gospel in Greek is euangelizo. Uh, That's the verb to preach the gospel, euangelizo. It's eu, E-U, which is the prefix in Greek, which means good. And then this word angelizo. Do you hear angel, angel, right? Uh, the word in Greek for message uh, is angelos. Uh, so angel, message, messenger. So uh, this, this word group, angel, angels are messengers. So it's no accident that the author of Hebrews says he's greater than the angels. Why? Because the angels are the greatest messengers of God in the Old Testament. When a prophet comes, okay. But when an angel comes, I fall down as if dead. Angels are the ultimate messengers of God. And in fact, we, we, we could even point to the fact that the prophets often got their messages from angels. So that the angels are greater than the prophets. So the author of Hebrews is opened and said, God worked through the prophets in the Old Testament, but now he speaks through a son. A son whose message is affirmed. It's a confirmed message. He's the very imprint of the nature of God. He's the word by which God spoke to create the world. And he's a greater messenger even than the angels. Right? Let me pause for a second. Uh, any questions, comments, other observations? I've talked more this morning than I usually do. Yeah, yeah, isn't it something? Uh, without, without 
using the word priest or king. He still gets the priestly work and the kingly identity in there. Uh, we've, we've got his humiliation, his exaltation, his pre-existence, his you know, pre-incarnate and incarnate, and, uh, and now his, his glorified ministry. It's amazing what the author of Hebrews has done here, all of the ground he's been able to cover, and yet through all of it, he's got this unifying principle of Jesus Christ being the word, right? That God spoke in and through Jesus Christ. He is the word. Uh, and that word then, because of the way he describes it, we, we understand that it's authoritative. Uh, it's the divine word. And all of that's going to be good news because the author of Hebrews is going to be focused not only Christ in his person, but particularly Christ in his work and how superior Christ in his person and work are to every other thing God has ever done for his people. And so it's important for us to start off from the very beginning reminded of the confidence that is ours in Jesus Christ and the beauty. This is exalted language that the author of Hebrews uses here. In these first four verses is uh, a powerful and beautiful statement that Christ in his person and work is the theme of Hebrews and that uh, that work is his mediatorial work, making purification for sins. That's the work of Jesus Christ. And that's important too, right? It's, if, this, if this opening four verses, what's called the introduction or uh, what's the fancy word they use for them sometimes, the exordium, right? Uh, if, if, if this is where the author of Hebrews is going to, to cash all of his chips up front and make it crystal clear what this letter is going to be about, and it's about Christ and his work, look at the work. He zeroes in on one particular aspect of Christ's work, and that is Christ making purification for sins. Ever since the beginning, uh, the, the encroachment of liberalism, theological liberalism in the church, which is a result of the, the uh, philosophers in Europe in the, uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, ever since the, the liberalism uh, that has risen up out of that philosophy has encroached in the church, the thing they have attacked at the center of their work is the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but most of the Christian churches that you see on the, the street today, uh, particularly what we call the mainline churches, right? Uh, the United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, so usually First Pres is, uh, is kind of how those churches are, are named. Uh, the, uh, the Episcopal Church. Uh, these, these traditions in the American church, part of what we call the main line, uh, they no longer believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. They may be happy to use that language, but they're winking when they do. Because they, they don't just, it's not just that they don't believe Jesus Christ was a substitutionary atonement. They despise it. They ridicule it. And they try to argue that the Bible never says that's what Jesus did. Rather, they say, he was a good example. Jesus was a good example of what it looks like to love your brother. But he, and that's why in the early 20th century, and I, I, that's not a mistake, in the early 20th century, liberal theology came up with this catchphrase to help people understand what they were all about. You've heard me talk about it before if you've been here very long. What's the catchphrase? Anybody remember? What would Jesus do? 
See, you thought bookstores in the 1990s and evangelicalism came up with a great way to make pennies on the dollar, you know, the, the, the bracelets, the WWJD, what would Jesus do bracelets? The slogan, what would Jesus do, is from the early 20th century liberal churches. Why? Because it's no longer about what Jesus did, except in as much as it was an example for you. Are you a Christian? I don't know. Do you do what Jesus would do? But in that, they are explicitly denying that Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself and put it away in his death. They no longer believe that. The author of Hebrews says it is the center of the gospel, the center of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. He made purification for sins. No mere example. Jesus Christ has put your sin away, and if he hasn't, then we are all of us to be pitied. The gospel is worthless. The author of Hebrews is, is careful to put this at the very center of the work of Jesus Christ. We've got 10 minutes left. Um, there's, as I said last week, we could spend weeks just making observations in this text. Uh, he's going to go on uh, with this language about the angels. Verse 4 is transitional. Uh, it's deeply connected, as I've pointed out. The reason he brings the angels up is because they are God's divine and appointed messengers. But even they have been superseded now by Jesus Christ, who is the very word of God. So in verse 5 and following... Uh, all the way up through uh, the end of chapter 1. We're going to get him showing from Scripture how the Messiah was always meant to be greater than the angels. Uh, And we're going to see him quote the Psalms. And so um, I'm not going to start that this week, though. We don't have enough time to get started. So any other questions, discussion, insights? Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Mm-hmm. That's right. It will significantly enrich your reading of God's word if you will, will drink deeply of this particular truth and cling to it as you read. Let it be a grid through which you read God's word. God's promises are all made first to Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God belong to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one to whom he made promises. And then to all of those who are in Christ, everything that belongs to him belongs to us. Right? So when it says Christ is the heir of all things, he's focused on Christ being the heir, but he's going to bring this in later in the book. Because Christ is the heir of all things, we inherit when we are in Jesus Christ. In fact, he's going to use the language of covenant, which in the original languages, actually there's some ambiguity in this language of the, the word covenant in, uh, in the original Hebrew and Greek. He's going to play on that and say nobody inherits until there's a death, right? And Jesus Christ's death is that death by which we inherit. So, yeah, uh, that's a, an excellent observation there whom he appointed the heir of all things. Because he's the heir of all things and because he belongs to us and we to him, all that is his is ours. All the promises of God to us are yes and amen in Jesus Christ.
That's what Paul means. Craig. I believe it's son. Yeah, in the context, I believe son is the name that he inherits. And so one of the things that, uh, that scholars wrestle with, uh, we talked about this some last week, Jesus Christ is son as in eternally begotten son. That is, there's never been a time when the second person of the Trinity was not the son. His, his very existence, his being, is that of the eternally begotten of the Father, and so Son. He also, though, comes into a sonship in his incarnation. We see that language in the New Testament and in the Gospels. Uh, Christ is, in a sense, not a son, and in his incarnation becomes one. It's a little easier to think about that, if we shift from son to king, is Jesus Christ the king of the universe? Has he ever not been the king of the universe, sovereign over all things, able to carry out all that he wills? Absolutely not. He has always been such a king. And yet, a kingdom is held out to Christ that becomes his by his obedience. Christ in his, his perfect life and his perfect death his obedient death, inherits a kingdom and becomes king in that sense as well. It's the same with son. He is an eternal son, eternally begotten of the Father, but in his incarnation is adopted as son. Uh, so, again, we, you, another way to think about this is the man Jesus Christ has not existed in eternity past. His incarnation is real, and like all human people, has a beginning. Jesus Christ is not human in eternity past. He is human beginning at the conception. When the Holy Spirit causes Mary to conceive, humanity, Christ's humanity, comes into existence. So that humanity, it doesn't diminish the divinity. The two aren't mixed in a way that diminishes both. Uh, he doesn't give some things up as Christ. We talked about this three or four weeks ago when we did the, uh, the little refresher on Christology. He is fully God, and in humbling himself, Philippians 2, he humbles himself by addition. He humbles himself by taking the form of a man, Paul says in Philippians 2. And so in the same way that he's always existed, and yet there's a beginning to his Jesus Christ, the state of Jesus. Jesus is a personal name given to him at birth, right? So while we don't want to be too nitpicky, and we're, we're fairly careless about this, and even Nathan and I are constantly having to kind of, oh, probably not the best way to say that. He's not Jesus in the Old Testament. He's anticipated. Jesus is anticipated in the Old Testament, but where he appears, the second person of the Trinity, he's not Jesus yet. He's the Son of God. He becomes Jesus at his incarnation. So Jesus is not present in the Old Testament in his person, he's anticipated. But he is in his divinity as the Son of God present in the Old Testament, uh, inasmuch as he appears to the people of God from time to time. So, okay, uh, yeah, Sarah.
Yeah. That's right. Yeah, being made perfect, having become, we see in the text here. And the, the, there's a couple of things I'd point to that, that kind of explains, I think, why we look at that and we go, what? One is, it's shocking, right? It's just shocking uh, that Christ submitted himself to this. This is part of the humiliation, is that he, in the humiliation, is becoming, is being made perfect. Um, but another reason is because being finite, uh, and there being no analog in all of creation uh, to the, the Jesus Christ who is God and man, there's nothing we can point to. It's kind of like the Trinity. Have you guys ever heard, um, and you've probably heard me um, roll my eyes at it, but uh, they tried, when in history people have tried to explain the Trinity, they say it's like uh, water. Water can be in a liquid form or a frozen form or a gaseous form, but it's all water. That's what the Trinity's like. No, it's not. That's modalism. It's an ancient heresy, right? Uh, and, and as funny as it is, the best place to go to get a quick primer on this is YouTube and look up Lutheran satire and, uh, and Trinitarian heresy, right? It's two Irish brothers who are, uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, uh, two Irish brothers who have St. Patrick standing before them, and they're like, you know, explain the Trinity to us. And St. Patrick starts with his, uh, his, his three-leaf clover illustration. It's one clover, but three leaves. They're like, oh, you know, oh, Patrick, that's heresy, Patrick. Um, and so they, they kind of run through the ancient heresies, which are ancient and yet modern. Uh, and so in the same way when we come to Christ and we're trying to wrestle with this humanity and his divinity in our finite minds with nothing else to go to as, as an analog, as an analogy to help us understand it, uh, there is no analogy because there is no other thing in the world like it. It is unique, right? And so what happens is in our minds we have a tendency, despite our best efforts, uh, from one moment to the next to be falling off of, you know, to, to a... Uh, insisting upon the divinity in such a way and elevating the divinity and acknowledging the divinity in such a way that when we turn back to humanity, we gasp. How in the world are these held together, right? Being reminded that he's truly human, we turn to the humanity and we rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior who knows what it is to suffer as we suffer. Uh, and we, we uh, in a positive sense, wallow in the truth of that humanity uh, and we turn to see the divinity and we gasp. It's, it's impossible for us to hold these two together uh, in, in the, the, the balance that is the truth of his full divinity and his full humanity uh, so that we read that he's becoming and we go, how in the world does the eternal son of God become? Right? He's being made perfect. How in the world is the eternal son of God being made perfect? That's right, yeah. So when we, when we see being made perfect and we go, how is that possible? We're focused on the divinity, right? Uh, we say, how can he be divine and, and yet be in process? To borrow a very dangerous theological term, right? Process theology. I'm not, I'm not a process theologian for those of you who might know what that is, which is, does anybody? Maybe Barrett. Barrett probably knows what process theology is. 
But Christ is truly human. And to be human is to grow in knowledge. That's an inherent human quality, an inherent human trait. If Christ is not in any sense becoming, then he is not in any sense human. He only seems to be human, which is yet another ancient heresy called docetism. Right? So, yeah, we're always trying to hold these, these things in balance. It ought to awe us. Uh, it ought to keep making us gasp. And maybe that's why, in our finiteness, created as we are by God, maybe that's why we can't hold it together. Maybe we are continually caused to gasp at the truth because we, we lose focus on the one and put focus on the other for uh, a time. And when we turn back to the, the first... We gasp because we're reminded all over again of the beauty and the power of the truth of his divinity and the beauty and the power and the comfort that comes in the truth of his humanity, right? Uh, Chris, do you have a question? I couldn't tell if your hand was going up. Yeah, that's a struggle, isn't it, sometimes, trying to decide... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, and then the powerful statement of Paul, yeah, declared to be the son of God by the resurrection. Um, yeah, I, I think if we will read God's word uh, eagerly looking for Christ, eagerly looking to learn and to be reminded of all of the beauty of his humanity, his work, all of the beauty of his divinity, and the power that is there because of it, uh, the, the gentleness with which Christ uh, approached the sinners, right? Um, and the way the Old Testament anticipates him in every sense uh, as the, the, the warrior who will destroy utterly to the utmost the enemies of God and yet one who will not extinguish a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. Uh, only Jesus Christ could possibly be the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. 
Certainly, yeah. And in, in order to understand Christ's work, and even his person, we have to understand that he is the, the last Adam, as Paul calls him in, uh, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Adam is set up as our federal head, a representative for us in a covenant. And as our representative, he fails. Uh, Jesus Christ is the last Adam. He's the head, the federal representative of that same covenant. Uh, and as such, he succeeds where Adam failed. So there's all this analogous, right? We are meant to understand Christ in light of Adam. What Adam did, what he failed to do. And not only that, it's, it's, it's not that being perfect is merely not sinning. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what Christ is called to do, and we're over time, but I'm, I can't bring myself to stop talking about Jesus. Uh, what, what Jesus is called to do in his earthly ministry uh, is to accomplish what Adam failed to accomplish. So that Adam was required to accomplish perfect obedience and was presented with a test in order to demonstrate that he would be obedient, and he failed. So that temptation in the garden is recapitulated by Christ in, this, in the desert, right? Notice Adam in the garden had everything he needed to succeed. The very word of God delivered in person. Adam placed in a garden where every good thing was given to him to take as he wished except for this one thing, and he failed. And Christ goes into the wilderness, and after 40 days of fasting, is presented with the temptation. The worst possible circumstances under which to experience a temptation and Jesus Christ uh, goes through that flawlessly and I love what Nathan pointed out in the sermon today about Christ took up the sword uh, in his temptation he answered Satan with the word of God so okay we're going to pick up where we left off next week um, but uh, we're way over so parents if you have children down the hall please rush down there after I close in prayer and get your children and relieve our, uh, our wonderful uh, teachers down there. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would give us an increasingly glorious vision of Jesus Christ and his person and his work. Father, that you would make him more beautiful to us than anything that the world or our hearts would seek or desire. Father, give us uh, a desire to pursue him at all costs. Uh, to, uh, to having found this treasure in a field, to go and sell everything in order to purchase the field and come into the possession of this treasure. Father, would you do this in our hearts? Give us wisdom in our homes to lead so that, uh, that we together with our children would know Christ. We pray that you would do all of this for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.